Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called In the Dust and the Dirt, Greater Glory in Lesser Circumstances, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 11, 2007. The lectionary this week brings us to Haggai. Next to Obadiah, it's the shortest book in the, Old, in the Old Testament, barely two pages in my Bible. How did this scrap of a manuscript ever survive the ravages of time and chance so that we still read it today, 2,500 years later? I'm not sure, but I'm glad that it did survive, because whereas our churches and culture boast that bigger is better and the size matters, Haggai says that God operates differently. Along with Zechariah and Malachi, Haggai is one of the three post-exilic prophets who ministered to a demoralized remnant that had returned to the ruins of Jerusalem after exile in Babylon. At this point in their history, the displaced Jews were an insignificant footnote to the geopolitics of the day. The headlines back then featured the fall of Babylon and the rise of Persia, the two global powers that subjugated the leftovers of what used to be the nation of Israel. A beleaguered remnant of Jews had lived in Babylonian exile for about 50 years when the tectonic plates of history shifted. On October 13, 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered the Babylonian king Nabonidus in the Battle of Opus on the Tigris River, near what is today modern Baghdad. Cyrus later issued a decree in 536 BC that allowed Jews to return to Jerusalem in order to resettle their lands and to rebuild their ruined temple. Some exiles did return, but in truth, life was probably better in Babylon. The good news, of course, was the possibility of repatriation, but the bad and bitter news was what the exiles found when they returned to Jerusalem. Reconstruction of the ravaged temple began in 534 B.C., but we read in the book of Ezra that the effort fizzled out and ground to a halt. Perhaps even then there was a post-traumatic stress syndrome triggered by returning to the scene of a national tragedy. Everywhere they looked, only vivid reminders of the catastrophe of war for the losers. Maybe bitterness, resignation, and demoralization undermined good intentions. It's easy to imagine that a lack of skilled labor, imperfect working conditions, insufficient building materials, and underfunded budgets, all of these stymied progress. A generation had grown up in Babylon who knew nothing of the former splendor of Solomon's temple. In fact, for some younger people who returned to Jerusalem, their exilic experience in Babylon involved no temple at all. 
History moved on, and in 529 BC, Cyrus died. His successor, King Darius, reissued the rebuilding edict about 14 years later, and restoration of the Jerusalem temple began once again. This so-called second temple, as it is called, was finished in the year 515 BC. Some Jews who were still living then compared the restored second temple with Solomon's original temple. The verdict was inevitable and predictable. We read in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? By Solomonic standards, the second temple was a meager, pale imitation, and everyone knew it. That much was true. We even read in chapter 2 of Haggai that temple rituals that had been long neglected and that were unfamiliar to a new generation led to religious and ritual defilements of all sorts. But Haggai insisted that God was every bit as present in the modest second temple under the Persian ruler Darius as he was in the extravagant temple under King Solomon of Israel, or for that matter, under the oppressive regime of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon when there was no temple at all. The repatriated exiles had to start over. They had to revise their judgments about the modest restoration project and what that did and didn't signify about the presence of God in their community. They had to accept their meager circumstances with brutal realism, even as they worked hard to overcome them. They also had to maintain their confidence in the word that God spoke to them through Haggai. We read in Haggai, Be strong, all you people of the land, and work. Rebuild, for I am with you. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I will bless you. And the glory of the second temple will outshine the splendor of the first temple. Whether in victorious exodus out of Pharaoh's Egypt, humiliating exile to Nebuchadnezzar's pagan Babylon, or post-exilic return to the ruins of Jerusalem under the Persian rulers Cyrus and Darius, God was present among his people. Most of us experience our own share of reversal, exile, defeat, destruction, and catastrophe. Sometimes our enemies do this to us. At other times, we do it to ourselves. Oftentimes, there's no apparent reason at all. Our health, our checkbooks, our jobs and families all include some amount of battle, whether a slight skirmish or perhaps wholesale devastation. The outward circumstances of our lives can feel harsh and threaten to diminish our vision, 
and we questioned like Haggai, does it not seem like nothing? Still, God speaks to us today through Haggai's ancient promise. I am with you. Do not fear. My spirit remains among you. There can be greater glory in lesser circumstances. In his poem called Revival, the Welsh poet and physician Henry Vaughan reminds us that even in the dust and dirt of our lives, the lilies of God's love can bloom. Listen to Henry Vaughan's poem, Revival. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark, how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out. The frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves and expressed joys reply unto the turtle's voice. And here in dust and dirt, O oh, here, the lilies of his love appear. Haggai says that God meets us where we are, not where we wish we could be. Even and especially in downsized circumstances like a rebuilt temple, in a ravaged city. God's Spirit moves even when we might not see or feel His presence. When we least expect it, in the dust and dirt of our lives, God says in Haggai chapter 2, verse 19, From this day on, I will bless you. And now for further reflection. Consider this historical footnote to Haggai's prophecy and reflect on the absence of the temple and the presence of God among his people. Haggai describes how the second temple was finished in the year 1515 BC during the reign of King Darius of Persia. This temple was enlarged and expanded by King Herod in 20 BC, but then destroyed by the Romans when they sacked Jerusalem on August the 4th, 70 AD, to end the four-year Jewish revolt against Rome that lasted from 66 to 70 AD. After the Romans built their own temple on the site, between the years 687 and 691, the 9th Caliph Abd al-Malik built a Muslim shrine on the site called the Dome of the Rock. Today, the Dome of the Rock sits on the original site of the Jewish temple. For books this week, I review Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, The First Christmas. 
What the Gospels really teach about Jesus' birth. San Francisco, Harper, 2007, 258 pages. Readers acquainted with the several popular books by these two prominent New Testament scholars will find no surprises here, but rather familiar terrain. The current volume serves as a companion to their earlier work about Easter, complete with a presumptuous subtitle. That book was called The Last Week, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Final Days in Jerusalem. Since the Gospels of Mark and John don't include any birth narratives, this book is in essence a simple exposition of Matthew chapter 1 and 2 in Luke chapter 1 and 2. Borg and Crossan try to squeeze maximal theological meaning out of minimal historical facts. For them, the nativity stories are not historical narratives, but neither are they fables. They suggest a third alternative, that the birth stories are metaphorical, or they use the word parabolic in nature, and therefore, quote, about meaning, not factuality, end quote. This doesn't require that you deny the factuality of the birth narratives they claim. It simply sets that question aside. But in practice, they conclude that the nativity stories contain a bare minimum of history. And I quote, quote, probably just the three items that Jesus was a historical figure whose parents were Mary and Joseph and whose home was at Nazareth in Galilee. This begs the question how beginning with such bare-bones data you arrive at what they call a quote-unquote surplus of meaning, and even more importantly, how you arrive at a deeply subversive and pervasively anti-imperial nativity message. The parabolic stories about Jesus' birth, they argue, challenge any and all imperial authority. Jesus, they write, is the new Moses who challenges King Herod, who was the new Pharaoh. Whereas Rome promised peace through violent victory with Caesar, the nativities announced peace through nonviolent justice with Christ. I'm dubious about historical deconstructions two millennia after the events that claim to know more and to know better than the first witnesses, that do not give compelling explanations about how and why the first witnesses got things so badly wrong and yet attracted the allegiance of so many converts, or thirdly, that insinuate that the early believers were more gullible about what today we find, quote, impossible to believe, end quote. On the other hand, Borg and Crossan do a fine job of illuminating the religious background of first century Judaism and the cultural and political background of the Roman Empire, showing how the biblical texts in these two contexts interact with each other. They affirm that the birth of Jesus signaled a deeply personal salvation, or peace of mind, but emphasize the magnificent reversal and stunning subversion of all political pretensions of the state, 
peace on earth. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan, The First Christmas, What the Gospels Really Teach About Jesus' Birth. For film this week, I review In the Valley of Elah from the year 2007. Director Paul Haggis, who made the film Crash, starts with an interesting premise that might have moved his film beyond the many treatments of how war dehumanizes people. He considers war from the vantage point of a soldier's parents. Hank Deerfield, played by Tommy Lee Jones, is a super patriot and retired Vietnam veteran who learns that his son Mike has gone AWOL on his home leave from Iraq. He's already lost one son to a military accident. So Hank drives from his home in Tennessee to Fort Rudd in New Mexico in order to find Mike before it's too late. But it is too late. And when Mike's charred and dismembered body is found in a field near his military base, Hank teams up with the detective Emily Sanders, played by Charlize Theron, to solve the crime. But at this point, the film reverts to a generic detective mystery and loses its way. There are jurisdictional squabbles, predictable bungling that Hank corrects, army cover-up, and sexist harassment against Charlize Theron. Worst of all, the last 15 seconds of this film are a political cheap shot and a tacked-on moral. Director Haggis makes excellent use of video recovered from Mike's cell phone to communicate the garbled and grotesque reality of the Iraq War, which, unhappily, was also Mike's reality. In the Valley of Elah, from the year 2007. Finally, this week we've posted a marvelous poem familiar to many by Teresa of Avila. Teresa of Avila lived from 1515 to 1582. Born in Spain, she entered a Carmelite convent when she was 18 and later earned a reputation as a mystic, reformer, and writer who experienced divine visions. She founded a convent and wrote the book The Way of Perfection for her nuns. Other important books by her include her autobiography and then The Interior Castle. Teresa of Avila, Christ Has No Body. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes, yours are his body. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, 
no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 11th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.